So we are turning to chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel this morning. Um, following Jesus' instruction to his disciples before he sends them out, uh, this is <clears throat> this is a, a, a passage, and I mentioned it this morning in our Sunday school class. If you weren't here, um, this is the passage where we uh, we we come back to John the Baptist, and there's a very, 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 very important principle in this passage that I don't want us to miss. Um, and of course, at this point, John is still in prison, and. Uh, yeah, I'm going to stop there before I give away the whole thing. So, once you find Matthew chapter 11, as we normally do, I'm going to ask everybody to stand for God's Word this morning. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see and what you hear. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let's pray. Father, as we... Look in your word this morning as we read and we study. Help us to understand the principles that were written so long ago that apply to our lives today. Father, help us to be encouraged. Help us to be motivated, to be bold in the world, to be willing to go where you send us no matter the cost. We pray this because of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. So... What happens here is uh, Jesus finishes up instructing the disciples, and, and, and if we back up to, oh goodness, all the way back to um, the beginning of chapter 10, he gives them these instructions about going into Jewish cities and preaching the gospel and, and teaching everything that he has taught and healing the sick and, and giving sight to the blind and cleansing the lepers and casting out demons and so on and so forth and then giving them the warnings that there's going to be persecution that comes with this. And then after he finishes all of this, presumably the group, now that includes Jesus and the 12 disciples, so that's 13 people total in case you can't count, 13 people, they split and they go to separate cities. Now they may have paired off. I expect that's probably what happened. And Jesus went to some cities, the disciples went to some cities. We don't know what cities, when, where, that's not important. While they were there, they did what Jesus told them to do. They taught, they healed the sick, they cast out demons, they told people about this teacher who was probably the Christ. They're starting to put this picture together in their head. And as the news spread... People heard about Jesus, people heard about this ministry, people heard about this gospel, and they traveled from Galilee to Judea. They traveled around the countryside and they carried this message of the teacher and his disciples, who would later be called 
the men who turn the world upside down. And this message makes it to John, John the Baptist. This is not John the Apostle. This is not John the author of uh, the Gospel of John or 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. This is John the Baptizer. This is John, Jesus' cousin, born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, He's in prison because of Herod the Tetrarch. And Herod put him in prison because John had the nerve to tell Herod that the relationship he was in with his sister-in-law was wrong, among other things. And so uh, John hears this. He hears of this man, the one that he had baptized in the Jordan River. He's healing the sick and raising the dead and doing all of these things. All of the signs point to this being the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior, except there's one little thing that's kind of put a catch in John's thought process. And that is his surroundings. Where is he? He's in prison. Well, if this is the Messiah who's come to deliver Israel, why am I still behind bars? How come he hasn't started cleaning out the Romans yet? Even John, the prophet, who was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, he was expecting the deliverance of Israel with the coming of the Messiah. He was raised in a Jewish home. He was raised in Israel. Remember, his dad was a priest. His dad was a learned man. He was a man who served the people of Israel in the temple. He knew what the common thought was about the Messiah. And yet here he sits in a prison cell, And there isn't any deliverance coming. There isn't any word of uprisings. There isn't any word of the Romans being driven out of Palestine. And so, since the deliverance wasn't as imminent as he expected, he showed us that he's human. And he began to doubt. So he sends a message to Jesus by way of his disciples to ask the question, are you the one or do we need to keep looking? Was I wrong? Now this is the principle that I want you to wrap your head around. Having doubts about what God is doing is not a sign that you're not mature enough, that you're not holy enough, that you're not righteous enough, or any of those other things that we tend to attribute when we have doubts. Raise your hand if you've ever been in the middle of a situation where you wonder, what is God doing? I thought I knew what He wanted me to do, but now, well, maybe not. Remember the circumstances of John's birth. Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who was called barren in her old age. Zechariah is minding his own business, burning incense in the holy place. All of a sudden, the angel shows up and says, Hey, by the way, you're going to have a kid. And he doubts. And he's struck mute. Just probably Elizabeth's dream while she's pregnant. 
<laughs> that he's not able to talk because he would have said stupid things because that's what guys do when their wife is pregnant, right? And she has a child in her old age. And then he speaks again. And everything that God said was going to happen, happens. Do you think John was ignorant of this? No, because as he's being raised up, if you remember, one of the other things that the angel said was he would be raised according to the Nazarite vow, set apart for the service of God. That means that his hair wouldn't be cut. He wouldn't touch dead animals. He wouldn't drink the fruit of the vine. All of those things, if you want a, a, a better rundown of the Nazarite vow, go look at Samson. Because that's what Samson was supposed to do. Now, John was never promised great strength in relation to this, but it's the same vow. Only John upheld it. John, who was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, right? He was, he was the forerunner. We looked at it in uh, Sunday school this morning. In John's gospel, when, when Jesus is baptizing in the Judean wilderness, and John is baptizing in the Judean wilderness, and John's disciples come up and they, and they complain. They're like, hey, Jesus is getting all the credit. John said, I told you I'm not the Messiah. I'm just the one to come announce. He knew who he was, and he knew what he was there for. <coughs> With as holy and as righteous and as spirit-filled as his life was, to the point where when Jesus came to the river to be baptized, John knew. He said, there's one who's coming after me, and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And when he saw Jesus approaching, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when Jesus gets into the water, he says, whoa, stop, time out. I'm baptizing people for repentance. You don't have anything to repent for. John knew who he was and who Jesus was. And yet, here in prison, he still had doubt. There are times when we feel God leading us to do something or to go somewhere, and we are certain that it's God's will for our lives. We are absolutely, positively, beyond the shadow of a doubt, certain this is what God wants us to do. And then when we're in the middle of it, and resistance increases, or it's more intense than what we were expecting, or we fail, and we don't know whether to keep going or not, it's very easy to ask the question, God, did I miss something? Did, did I miss a turn? Did I misinterpret what you were telling me to do? Was I really following my own passion instead of your will? Why did you have me to come here and do this and then allow me to fail? I had a case of this happen back in 2009, 2010. Uh, well, no, I guess it was 2008. Spring of 2008, our pastor at Bay Vista retired. He had a congenital heart condition, and he needed to be out of the pulpit for a while. So he retired. And various course of events, um, I filled the pulpit for a little while. 
and I was on the committee to select a new pastor. And uh, over the course of the next year or so, uh, I had this growing, gnawing in the back of my mind until one night, you can ask Steph later, she'll tell you, we were out walking our neighborhood, we had a little quarter mile, quarter mile-ish, maybe a third of a mile track in base housing where we lived. and We'd go out and we'd walk the dogs around it a couple of times and then we'd walk around it a couple of times just to talk, get away from the kids and because uh, they're such a pain in the neck. And we're walking around the neighborhood and all of a sudden I stopped talking. It's very rare for me to stop talking, especially in the middle of a conversation, especially when it's something that I have an opinion about. I just stopped, just quit. And we made about another loop and a half before she finally was like, what? I think I'm supposed to apply for that position. I think I'm supposed to put my resume in to be the pastor, which makes no sense whatsoever. This was in 2008. I still had four years left on active duty before I could retire. I was at the end of an assignment where they could PCS me across country or overseas. This just doesn't make any sense. God, why would you have me do this? And I wrestled with it, and I struggled with it, and I struggled with it probably for another three months before finally I I just, okay, I cannot take it anymore, and I put my resume in, and I resigned from the committee that was selecting because that would have been a a bad vote. (laughs) Let's put this guy up to be the pastor. And everybody I talked to confirmed it. They were like, yeah, we were wondering when you were going to do that. It's about time. And then in August of 2009, the committee brought Danny to the church to preach. And there was a part of me that felt that doubt, that betrayal, that, wait a minute, God, you led me to do this. You drew me to do this. Why would you have me go through this exercise only to have (coughs) somebody else for the position. And so I I listened to Danny preach. I met with him, had breakfast with him. Warren said he was weird. He is. But he's become one of my best friends. And when the vote came for him to become the pastor... I couldn't vote fast enough. He was the man for the job. But I still had those doubts. Was I was I really was I being selfish? Was I was I going out on my own? Was this really what God had called me to do? And it, it took me some time. And it took me some counsel with some wise and godly people to understand that God was trying to teach me to be ready to go when he told me to go. Fast forward (laughs) to early 2011 as I'm preparing to retire and I had a resume written up and and I had sent it over to the association office and and let Dion take a look at it to tell me what I needed to fix and and he apparently exploded a red pen all over it. Um, 
because there were markings all over. This is the fix that, get rid of this, change that, did, did all kinds of corrections and everything. So, okay, well, back to the, back to the grindstone. Good thing I've got about a year before I retire. And then I get a call from Mr. Dias. Be ready to go when I tell you to go. But see, that doubt process is what John is going through. This isn't, this isn't sin to have doubt that we are where God wants us. And I can tell you it's not sin because of the way Jesus responded to John. Jesus responds to John. This question by the, by John's disciples that, that John sent, are you the one who is to come or shall we keep looking? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus didn't say, Go and tell John that doubting me is a sin. He didn't say, Go and tell John he ought to know better than to ask that kind of question. He didn't say, Go and tell John that his life is forfeit because of these doubts. Instead, he sent them back and said, go and tell John what you see. And if those signs that Jesus listed there aren't enough for somebody to know that Jesus is sent by God, and remember in in John's Gospel, chapter 3, Nicodemus, one of the rulers of the Jews, one of the scribes and or Pharisees, comes to Jesus at night and he says, we know that you are sent by God because nobody could do these things if you weren't, right? If that wasn't enough, Jesus is actually quoting from the book of Isaiah here. He's quoting from Isaiah 35, which is a prophecy about the deliverance of the righteous remnant. And he's correlating what he's doing to that prophecy. This should be enough to clue in those who hear what he says that Jesus is the coming deliverer. So see, having those doubts, this is that principle I want you to wrap your head around. Having those doubts is not a bad thing. Questioning what God is doing is not a bad thing. There are times, there are many times in Scripture where we see somebody who cries out to God, God, why this? Why am I going through this? Now, the the prime example I can point to is Job. And even Job is not condemned for his questions. Now, God's response to his questions, okay, if, if I can put it this way, God was a little bit snarky in his response. I'm sorry, Job, where were you? When, when the, the earth's circumference was set, where were you when the stars were hung in the sky? Who are you to question me? But then he answers Job, and he says, you trust me. That's enough. And then Job is restored, and he's restored above and beyond what he lost. So there's another account of somebody who doubts. Now this prophecy that Jesus is talking about, this takes us to the The second part here, this prophecy is a prophecy for Israel. This is before Israel is taken into captivity. Isaiah is prophesying. The great thing about Isaiah, (laughs) 
when Isaiah takes his, his mission as a prophet, when, when we see that great, great picture in Isaiah chapter 6, one of my favorite accounts in all of Scripture, and, and God purifies his lips and cleanses him, and then God says, who will go? Who will I send? Isaiah says, here I am, send me, I'll go, I'll do it now. And then immediately after that, God says, okay, here's the scroll. Right? This is what you're supposed to say. And oh, by the way, nobody's going to listen to you. <laughs> One of the things that Danny has said on a number of occasions. At least Isaiah got a warning. <laughs> Most of us don't. The people of Israel weren't going to listen anyways. At the at this point here in chapter 35 of Isaiah, if you want to flip there to Isaiah 35... Isaiah 35 actually kind of wraps up a section of Isaiah's prophecy. Let me read this to you. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. If you look at the message that Jesus sends back, this is not a message of condemnation by any stretch of the imagination. This is, this is a prophecy of the restoration of Israel a prophecy of deliverance, a prophecy of good things to come. And there are some parallels to Israel that we have today in the world. Some of the imagery might be a little bit odd for you if you've never been in a desert. <laughs> if you've never been in a desert, some of this imagery may not make any sense. If you've lived down here on the coast your entire life, a lot of this imagery is not going to make any sense. In the first couple of verses, Isaiah speaks of the dry land blossoming, blossoming like the crocus. Crocus here is a desert flower that, that blooms following the spring rain. It only rains in the desert during a particular time of the year, and that's the springtime. And their springtime isn't nearly as long as our springtime. And their summertime doesn't come with the humidity that we get. Instead, it's dry. 
It's not just dry. It's dry. Okay? It is like you can feel the moisture evaporate from the soles of your feet through the top of your head dry. And so this picture here of the dry land, we're talking dried out, cracked, hard, concrete-like sand that is cracked and parched and there is no sign of moisture to it. And Isaiah says it will blossom like the crocus. It will blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. What could bring that more than the refreshment of rain? Now I know last week that rain wasn't necessarily refreshment because we got about six months worth in six hours. But in a desert, that kind of rain brings relief. That's when the animals come out. That's when the plants bloom because they've only got enough to last them that long. Isaiah also says the glory of Lebanon and the majesty of Carmel and Sharon will be given to it. Lebanon and Carmel and Sharon, those were vibrant, rich, wealthy cities. This is a a picture of majesty and abundance, just like the blooming of the desert. I remember being a kid, I know it was a long time ago, and watching those films in science class in elementary school where they did like a time lapse of the desert during the spring. So you'd have like Death Valley and that one time that it gets rain, that one day, and then like in the time lapse, it's like in the next seconds you see the the cactus blooms and the flowers sprout up and the lizards run across the where before there was no life, now there's an abundance of life. That's what Isaiah says the deliverance is going to look like. This is in contrast to what Israel looks like when Jesus is there. Spiritually, it is desolate, it is dry, it is cracked, it is barren. And you know, the world that we live in is a lot like that. The next two verses, Isaiah says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. For those who are about to lose hope because they just can't see how God is going to work things out, in the circumstances that they are facing. This is a huge message of hope. God's got this, whether you see it or not. This is very similar to what Jesus said back there in the, in the Beatitudes when we started looking at the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who wait on God's strength will receive God's blessing. It's when we try to plow through on our own. It's when we try to push through and do everything in our own power that we run out of strength, that we run out of energy. Verses 5 through 7, this is what Jesus is specifically quoting. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame shall leap like the deer, the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. 
The burning sand shall become a pool. For the Jews who would have heard this, it was the end of a time of silence. Remember that intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the last prophet and the opening lines of the New Testament marks a period of 400 years where there was no word from God to His people. A time of wilderness. For the Jews that Isaiah was talking to, they were getting ready to enter a period of exile, a period of imprisonment a period of wilderness. For the Jews that Jesus was ministering to, there was the end of that time of silence to look forward to. For us, we have that point forward to when Jesus returns. That doesn't mean we're living without hearing God's Word. We have God's Word. It's right here. It's available to us. But, we still have those times when we're spiritually dry in the wilderness, waiting. This is a point when those who are in Christ will have no more pain, no more death, no more misery to deal with. I can't wait. Cannot wait for that day. Verses 8 through 10, a highway shall be there should be called the way of holiness. The way of holiness, the highway. Prepare the way for the Lord. What is John saying? Prepare the highway. Make the path straight for the Lord. It's here. Again, Jesus is using this to answer John. John says, are you the one? Jesus says, ain't you the road crew making the highway ready? Oh, yeah. Don't lose faith. The way of holiness, the highway. I love this. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Even if they are fools. Which one of us is prone to foolishness? That's the way of the flesh, right? Which one of us is prone to foolishness? The answer is yes. All of us are. And yet Jesus says those that are on the highway of righteousness will not go astray. There won't be a lion there. There won't be a ravenous beast come upon it. They won't be found there. But all the redeemed shall walk there. There will be no hazard for the saved. That doesn't mean we won't sin. That doesn't mean we won't wander off and get lost. but it means we are safe. That highway will take us to the gates of heaven itself. If we take that message, if we take Jesus' response, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. If we take that, when we have doubt, when we have that questioning time, when we have 
that dark spot in our life where we sit back and we ask, why God? You had me go here for this. Why am I going through this struggle? You had me come here to talk to this person. Why did they reject the message? You had me do whatever it is that I am doing, and I have failed. When we have that question, why, we can turn here and we can look at Matthew 11, we can look at Isaiah 35, and we can see that we will be secure in Christ. He will deliver us to our final destination of eternal life with Him. Even if we're imprisoned, even if we're destined to be executed for the testimony of our salvation, like John was. Now there's last verse there. Verse 6. If you want to flip back to Matthew 11. Verse 6. This ties the whole message back to what Jesus told the disciples before they left. And this is the last thing that Jesus added into His message to John. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The fact of the matter is, the world is offended by Christ. The fact of the matter is, natural man does not and will not ever desire Christ. The only people who are not offended by Christ are those whom the Holy Spirit has worked on. Those that the Holy Spirit has regenerated. Those that God has reached down and made anew. And they really are blessed. We really are blessed if we are among that number. And so what Jesus is saying is that the message is going out. John said, prepare the way of the Lord. John said, (laughs) repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus said, blessed is the man who's ready to hear it. Blessed is the man who responds to that gospel message. That message is simple. I said it before, I'll say it again. It's simple enough a child can understand. Jesus is God's son. He was born to Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit, lived a perfect and righteous life. That's the hardest part for us to comprehend. I don't know what a righteous life looks like. I have less problem with the virgin birth than I have with understanding a righteous life. And he died on the cross even though he was perfect. And that death was sufficient to cover the sins of mankind. And that death was effective to cover the sins of those whom God has called to salvation. And if you need proof, you look at the resurrection. Because the resurrection is God's seal that that sacrifice was acceptable and sufficient for our righteousness.
anyone who hears that message and places their faith in Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Romans, will be saved. It's not maybe, it's will be.